This is Psalms to God, Season 4, Episode 4, Poetic Justice in the Bible. You can find the show notes for this episode at www.psalmstogod.com. Hey guys, welcome back to the Psalms to God podcast. I'm your host, Ree, and today we're going to be continuing our series on literary devices, and we're going to talk about poetic justice. Now, for those of you who are actually viewing this and tuning in via YouTube or the YouTube video that's embedded on the website, I am sorry that you're not seeing my face today. I do like to try to show my face so that you get expressions and I think it's a little less weird to see the person that's talking as opposed to them being kind of off camera. But I just really didn't feel like filming myself today and so I'm not because <laughs> I still want to get this episode out. So I apologize and you will see my face again soon, I think. I hope. We'll see. <laughs> um, but for those of you who always just listen to my voice, this is not new for you. So thank you for um, giving me excuses to only record my voice because it's way easier than also trying to record my face. Uh, that being said, we are talking about poetic justice today. And I love this literary device. Um, we're going to talk about why I love it more so towards the end when we talk about the importance of it and why it's important to recognize it in the Bible. Um, so let's just jump into the definition and then we'll talk about some uh, secular examples, which I really struggled, <laughs> really struggled in this department. Um, and then we'll talk about biblical examples. So the definition of poetic justice is an outcome in which vice is punished and virtue rewarded, usually in a manner peculiarly or ironically appropriate. That definition is taken from Merriam-Webster. I saw other definitions that were similar and most of them sum up to what goes around comes around, right? It's basically like somebody's getting what they deserve, whether it's you know, an, a villain, you know, getting punished or whether it is a hero getting rewarded. Now, when I sat down to think of examples, I kept drawing a blank, which is so bizarre because I am fairly certain that this is one of the most popular devices used. And I, to a certain degree, I, I would wager that this exists in almost every story. Um, because we as humans want to see this. We want to see the good guy win. We want to see the bad guy fail. We want to see, you know, it turn out exactly the way we, we wanted it to. But I had so much trouble thinking it through and, and like finding an example where I was like, yeah. And I think some of it hinged on the this concept of it happening in a peculiar or ironic manner where it's like ironically appropriate. You know, because you're just like, yeah, I mean, like, most movies are, you know, good triumphs over evil, right? And so I, I really couldn't, I couldn't pinpoint, you know, an example. And I was thinking, you know, what have I seen lately? Um, you know, what happens? And I think in a lot of them, you definitely see the good guy get, you know, rewarded and the bad guy get punished you know the last things that I really watched on TV I watched Big Hero 6 which um, for those who have never seen it it's pretty awesome you should watch it so I'm not gonna spoil it but 
in the end, you end up with, you know, the villain gets caught and is apprehended and, you know, the good guys triumph over the villain. Um, the other thing that I watched was Ben-Hur, the old version. I don't recognize the new version. It was horrible. That's a topic for another day. But the old version, I mean, the old version has flaws too. Let's be real. Maybe I'll do an episode on Ben-Hur. I don't know. We'll get back to that. But in Ben-Hur, you have this rivalry between Judah Ben-Hur and Marsala. They grow up together. Marsala comes back. He wants Ben-Hur to uh, rat out his people. Ben-Hur refuses to do so. Then Marsala takes advantage of an accident to paint Ben-Hur as you know a terrorist or a threat to the government and has him imprisoned and his family uh, Ben-Hur ends up returning, threatens Marsala, ends up in a chariot race against him where Marsala ends up being dead. And uh, Judah Ben-Hur's family is restored to him uh, through the blood of Christ. And, you know, so in a way, I guess you could call it poetic justice because Marsala brings about his own downfall um, by angering Ben-Hur. And then also he's cheating throughout the chariot race trying to kill Ben-Hur and ends up dead himself. Um, and of course for Ben-Hur, he was in improperly uh, imprisoned. He didn't do anything wrong throughout the whole thing. Uh, and then his, you know, his family is taken from him, but it's also restored to him. So I guess that is an example of poetic justice, uh, but it didn't pop into my head immediately. What first popped into my head was the movie Poetic Justice which I don't remember what it's about. I think I watched it, but I don't remember. But there's a movie called Poetic Justice. Um, and then the next thing that popped into my head was Cinderella, uh, specifically the version starring Drew Barrymore. It's called Ever After. So it's uh, less fantasy. I don't think there's anything fantasy about it, to be honest. Um, it's very much more of like a realistic Cinderella um, and it's set way back. So it's basically kind of like historical fiction that would show you how the legend of Cinderella probably began. And so um, the where that becomes poetic justice and definitely shows that the punishment and the reward are ironically appropriate you have the stepmother treating Cinderella as a servant, lowering her station to a servant and um, stripping her of any sort of nobility. And in the end, Cinderella ends up married and not only does she regain nobility, but she is now a princess. Um, and she is basically the highest form of nobility she could possibly be. She ends up becoming a queen. Um, and in punishment uh the queen when she becomes princess the queen decides to punish her stepmother and the stepmother becomes a servant and the line is actually used she says that she wants to bestow upon her stepmother the same um service and the same kindness that she had bestowed upon her so now the stepmother has been stripped of her nobility and has been made a servant in the queen's household and in the princess's household. 
um, which is basically a circular thing. It comes full circle. Um, I think that's a great example of poetic justice in literature or in a movie. So I ended up looking it up online uh, to try to find better examples. And every website I found talked about Shakespeare. They were either talking about Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet or King Lear. Um, and, you know, I assume Shakespeare probably, I don't know if he pioneered it, but it was probably all the rage. It makes sense that Shakespeare would have been full of poetic justice. Um, I won't go into those examples, mainly because I don't really remember what happened in those things because I didn't commit Shakespeare to memory. I was not a huge Shakespeare fan. Uh, so if you are a huge Shakespeare fan, then you probably already know what those examples of poetic justice are. But if you're like me, you probably really don't care about Shakespeare. So <laughs> there is another example. Um, if you think of some that are really good, leave them in the comment section uh, for other people to see and for me to be reminded of what I've forgotten. But what's really important is us looking at the biblical examples of poetic justice. That's what this series is all about. So I started writing them out. I literally could not stop myself from coming up with examples. And there are probably even more examples than those that I have written down, but I just started jotting them down as they came to my mind. So the first thing that I thought about was with Jacob and Esau. Now, bear with me because we generally think of Jacob as Israel, right? Like Jacob was the chosen son. He was the favorite son in terms of from God's perspective, not from Isaac's perspective. And so he got the promise and the blessing and the birthright. And then he went on to create the tribes of, of Israel. Um, and it is him that we remember favorably. But Jacob was a little shady, right? So Jacob convinces Esau to sell his birthright to him. And while, you know, some people say that he tricked Esau, he didn't really trick him. It's just that Esau didn't appreciate what he had. Esau was willing to sell his birthright for some food. But after Esau sells his birthright, he still tries to claim the blessing. Now, I've heard various people say various things and they say that Jacob stole Esau's blessing. I'm not sure I agree with the word stole considering the blessing was part of the birthright. And so technically Esau sold Jacob the birthright, um, but probably Isaac did not know this. This was probably not discussed. Um, or maybe Isaac decided to give Esau the blessing anyway. I'm not really sure. But in any event, Jacob ends up tricking Isaac into giving him the blessing that Isaac meant to give Esau. And Esau is very, very upset by this. He is so angry that Rebecca sends Jacob away, uh, partially because she thinks that Esau is going to harm Jacob uh, for what he has done. And if we're not really paying attention, you kind of think that Jacob is touted as the hero and Esau the villain, and there is no poetic justice there because it is Jacob that comes back and inherits the land of Canaan, and it's Jacob who God chooses to put his name on that house and to call those 
people his people, etc., etc. But but there is an example of poetic justice here because Jacob goes back to the land of Abraham and as soon as he gets there he meets Rachel and he falls head over heels in love with Rachel. And so Laban, uh, his uncle, says, if you work for me seven years, I'll give you this woman as your wife. And so Jacob works for seven years to get Rachel as a wife. And lo and behold, on his wedding night, he goes and marries Rachel. And it comes to find out it's not Rachel, it's Leah. So the same way he was playing the trickster on Isaac and tricking Isaac into giving him his blessing he got played too and he ended up with a wife he did not ask for um, and then he had to work another seven years to get the wife he asked for and all the while that he lived with these two women he would have had to live with them bickering and them kind of being jealous of each other and juggling them and all this other stuff and he had to support both of them um so there was definitely a poetic justice in in that regard also while we see jacob and esau make up we see that esau says that he forgives jacob um, they still kind of go their own way but as we flash forward um, we end up seeing their descendants the israelites and the edomites um, go through another wave of this kind of poetic justice where um, Israel is escaping from Egypt and they want to pass through Edom and the Edomites are like, nah, nah, fam, y'all can't come through here. And so um, there's, does, there is basically bad blood there. And because of that, there remains bad blood between the Edomites and the Israelites throughout the Old Testament. Um, and so you do kind of see this poetic justice in the sense that they they're living out you know the what goes around comes around like your ancestor did our ancestor dirty so we're not going to help you either <laughs> um and so there is definitely some examples of poetic justice in there where we see jacob being punished for what he has done to esau another example is that of joseph and his brothers it's always the family always in the family right because we could probably go through the same thing with Cain and Abel but Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers and he talks about how um, the his brothers would bow down to him and he he says that he saw you know his parents bowing down to him just everyone was bowing down to him and the brothers get really annoyed and so they sell him off into slavery. Uh, and then Joseph ends up becoming the second most powerful man in Egypt, which was the most powerful country in the world. Um, it's essentially like being vice president of the United States right now, though arguably we're losing our superpowerness. But nonetheless, he became a big deal. And as the famine increased, you know, the, the brothers had to come to Egypt to get food. And so they had to go through Joseph. And just as he had said, they basically had to bow to him in order to get, you know, the grain. 
So you see a complete full circle where Joseph has been sold into slavery and now he is elevated into a position of power. His brothers had basically put him in that position and now they're the ones who are having to beg him for food. So that's another example of poetic justice. Esther, y'all, I talk about Esther all the time. I feel like I bring up Esther in every single thing that I do. I love the book of Esther. Um, this is a perfect example of poetic justice. There are actually two examples in Esther. There may be more, but two that come to my mind. The first is when the king decides to... Um, to uh, honor Mordecai and he's asking Haman you know what should I do to honor a man who has done great things and blah 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 so Haman thinks that the king is trying to honor him so he says all of these things that he wants and then he ends up having to do these things for Mordecai whom he hates um, so he basically has to lead Mordecai around and he has to um, you know, give him, you know, I think it's the king's ring or something like all of these things, all of these glorious gifts that he wanted bestowed upon him, he has to then bestow upon Mordecai. Um, and so that is definitely a poetic justice moment. But also, the same Haman um, goes and tries to have all of the Jews killed, he gets the king to sign a decree, wherein all Jews would be killed. And so Esther, when she approaches the king, she talks to him. Um, he's unable to completely revoke the decree because that's how Persian law worked. But they are allowed to come up with a loophole that allows the, the Jews to fight back. And Haman is subsequently hung. So uh, essentially, Haman sought to have Mordecai killed and ended up dead himself. And Mordecai and the rest of the Jews end up being victorious. Um, so that's definitely an example of poetic justice. Another one is with Moses and the Exodus. So when we first start reading the Exodus, the Pharaoh of Egypt is having all of the babies killed. So when they have babies, when the, when the Hebrew women have babies, they are instructed to kill them. I can't remember if it was only the male babies or all the babies, but it really doesn't matter um, in the grand scheme of things. I mean, killing babies is just bad. I mean, just have it. Just, I mean, whether it was just kill the males or whether it was kill all of them, like, that's still bad, right? So we're not going to worry about what, um, <laughs> which gender he was having killed, but he was having them killed. So Moses is fortunate enough to escape this tragedy and he ends up being raised in the Pharaoh's house, which is rather ironic. And then he ends up fleeing into Midian. He spends some time in Midian and then he comes back to demand the release of his people. Now, when he comes back and the 12 plagues start to fall, the 12, no, 10. I don't know why I said 12, 10. The 10 plagues start to fall. Um, the final plague is the death of the firstborn. So it's, it's not, ba it's not the babies, it's any for firstborn, right? So there may have been some babies, but also if Pharaoh had been a firstborn, Pharaoh would have died. Now, the fact that Pharaoh didn't die tells us that Pharaoh was not the firstborn son, uh, which is a 
good tidbit to know, but essentially this is a poetic justice moment where Egypt has killed the firstborns, um, or maybe not even just firstborns, but Egypt has killed the babies of the Hebrews, and now the god of the Hebrews has killed the firstborns of Egypt. So that was a poetic justice type of a moment. Um, and all of that could have been avoided if they had just let the Israelites go, right? So that's one example. Another example would be Job. Job is more of, I guess, a positive example where you have Job being attacked by Satan. He loses his family. He loses his fortune. He loses his health. Um, but in the end, God restores it to him double and he grants him great wealth and a whole nother family. Um, and he blesses him exceedingly, which is something we can look forward to because it's a promise that is given to us um, that he will bless the righteous um, and that he came to give us life more abundantly. So Job, definitely a bit of poetic justice in that. Um, another example that I have listed here is the nameless woman. I'm going to have to go back and find the exact Bible verses and I will put them in the show notes. And for those of you who are watching on YouTube, I will post it on screen when I edit the video. Um, but there is, uh, I want to think this might be in Judges somewhere. It's either in Judges or like 1 Samuel. Um, but essentially there is a man and a woman who go somewhere, um, they're traveling and while they're traveling, they run into some men who are, uh, not good men. I don't know how else to say that. They're not good men. And they end up taking the man's wife and raping her. And it reads a lot like Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, but... In the end, the woman who's never named ends up dead and her husband is furious, which is a little interesting because he doesn't really try to stop them. But we're going to talk about her in great detail in a couple of days or a couple of weeks. So we're going to come back to this story. Um, but where this becomes uh, poetic justice is that in the aftermath, when she is found dead, he decides to do something about it. And when he does something about it, he brings together all of the tribes to hunt down these men and punish them. But the tribe of Benjamin doesn't respond to the call. And I want to believe that the men who did it were from the tribe of Benjamin. And so in retaliation to Benjamin not helping with this mission of you know justice and righting wrongs the other tribes decide to essentially boycott the tribe of benjamin so they refuse to send the tribe of benjamin their daughters or to receive their sons so they are like we're not marrying into your tribe so the tribe of benjamin almost dies out Right. They end up having to beg them to let them marry into their tribes and marry their people um, so that the tribe doesn't completely fizzle out. And I find that to be um, a sense of poetic justice because that is the opposite of what they were trying to accomplish. Right. They're raping women. And so they're trying to get marital relationships. I mean, it doesn't mean they were trying to marry this woman, but 
they were trying to have sexual relationships with people. And essentially what happens is the number of people that they have eligible to be in these types of relationships with them are significantly reduced because everyone's like, well, we're not going to talk to y'all. We're we not having that. So <laughs> their entire population starts to dwindle. Um, that is definitely a form of poetic justice. And the final thing that I listed was Rachel and Leah. We talked about Rachel and Leah on the YouTube channel um, a week or so ago, maybe a little bit more than a week. And we talked about how uh, Rachel was favored and Leah was not um, in the eyes of Jacob. And so uh, Leah ends up having all of the sons. Rachel does not. Rachel ends up dying fairly early because she dies in childbirth. It, we don't know when Leah dies, but presumably Leah lived much longer than Rachel. Um, Leah's children are the ones that go on to be prominent members of the Israelite society. It is from Leah that we get the Levites. It is from Leah that we get the tribe of Judah. Uh, the tribe of Judah is also where we get the name Jew because um, Judah is what the Southern Kingdom was called. This is where the Kings came from, the line of Judah. And you know, even Christ was from that lineage. We have phrases like the Lion of Judah. Um, and of course, they called this place Judah or Judea, and that is where we get the word Jew and Jewish. So all of these things trace back to Leah, not Rachel, um, which is another sense of poetic justice. This one is a little bit more abstract than the others. It's not a case of one person did good and one person did bad and now, or one person had a vice and one person had a virtue. This is more so of a balancing, right? Like God saw that Rachel was being favored by Jacob. And so he gave to Leah abundantly. Um, it's not so much Rachel did something wrong and she was punished or Leah did something wrong and was punished or one of them did something right and was rewarded but it is it does have an air of poetic justice even though it doesn't fit that definition to the t now that being said i want to wrap up with why this is important and why this is one of my favorite literary devices it's really powerful because this is what we wish we saw a lot of times we don't see these kind of neat wrap-ups like we don't see that this person mistreated me my whole life and then it turned around on them now sometimes it happens we just don't get to see it right because a lot of things happen behind closed doors that we don't know about and so sometimes poetic justice is being served we just don't know about it um but all of us i think experience something like we want to see like oh i worked hard and i want to be rewarded for my hard work or, or oh this person did me wrong and i want them to be punished now that being said in converse we've all done somebody wrong and we don't want to be punished for it so it's kind of a it's yeah, it's kind of a catch-22 there but in general poetic justice is literally the theme of the bible right the entire story is about the fact that God is promising that he will reward the righteous and punish the wicked. So the whole overarching story is that of poetic justice. Now, it's 
slightly different because we kind of got ourselves into the situation. Um, so we don't exactly deserve to be saved. But at the same time, you know, it can be said we were tricked into it by the serpent. And so it is poetic justice because he tried to make himself God by tricking us into following him. And in the end, he will be killed and we will be exalted or we will be we won't be God, but we will be with God and restored back to our rightful place with dominion over the planet and things like that. That is an important thing to keep in mind for the overall purpose of the Bible. But I think it helps all of these little stories or the, the sub stories that we talk about um, briefly, they are important because it helps us to focus in on it, right? It's kind of harder to see in the larger story in the abstract. It looks a lot more like our life day to day where we're not necessarily seeing it come to fruition. But when we stop and think about what happened with Esther and Haman and Mordecai, when we think about what happened with um, Moses and Pharaoh, when we think about Joseph and his brothers, when we think about Job being rewarded at the end, it can give us hope and it gives us um, this willpower to keep fighting because we know that in the end, justice will be served. And that is the most important thing, right? That we serve a God of justice. And so definitely uh, a literary device to be on the lookout for as you're reading the word. If you thought of any other examples or if you had any thoughts on this, feel free to leave me a comment or a message in the comment section or on the blog. And I will see you guys again soon. Don't forget the blog is at www.psalms.com. To God.com. That is where the show notes will be. Don't think I've been mentioning that in some of these episodes, but um, that is where you can find additional content, uh, references, and anything else that you might need. Also links to contact me. So thanks again for tuning in and I will see you guys again next time. Bye!